Well, we do thank God for a, day, a great day. It's good to enjoy summer. It's good to enjoy God's blessing in every place and in every way. And it's good to see you and to see the working of God in your life, to know that he's at work in your lives. Before we open up the word of God, I'd like to pray, and then we'll begin to see what God will teach us today. Father in heaven, we look to you. We look to your son, Jesus. The Lord, who else will we go to? You have the words of life. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that there are words of life, and that there are words that, that not only give us wisdom and guidance, but that actually touch our souls and change us and move us toward you and toward heaven. And Lord, we thank you for that. As we open your word today, I pray that you would teach our hearts. Help us to learn from the lives of those who have gone on before those things that we need to understand about our own lives. And help us, Lord, in all of this to see your hand upon us and to see you working in this world and in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to talk about choices. Choices are these little things that we make by the dozens, by the hundreds, by the thousands, and some of them are small choices, some of them are major choices, some of them have very little impact on us, and some of the choices that we make affect us for all of our lives, and some choices affect us all the way into eternity. And it's important that we understand the nature of our choices. So these next few weeks, I want to look at choices, and I want to look at the choices that people of God made. And as they made these choices, some of them were good choices, some of them were not. And as we study these choices, you and I can see ourselves reflected in their lives, and we can also see the consequences of choices. So I'd like us to begin with this and to study these choices. And I was thinking about choices just from the news. Not long ago, in July, in England, there were four thieves that decided they were going to be very, very uh, entrepreneurial and they wanted to help liberate some materials that they thought someone had too much of. They, they wanted to take some electronic equipment, very expensive electronic equipment, and they decided that they were going to steal this stuff at night and they tried to determine what's the best way to get away. And they decided amongst themselves that quietness was, the, was the, the key to a good escape. And so they decided on, they, they devised a way of escaping with all of the goods that they were going to steal. And that's exactly what they did. On July 3rd, they broke into this place. Uh, it was near Cambridge, England. And all the electronic equipment, flat screen televisions, DVD players, all the stuff they could carry off, they loaded into boats. That was their quiet method of escape. One thing they didn't think about ahead of time was the speed of the boats. They were quiet because they only moved three miles an hour down the river. And the police on the shore were very easily uh, able to track them and to follow them and, and to capture them and all the equipment that they had taken off. They made choices, and their choices had consequences, but they weren't good choices. Now, you and I have to make choices as well as we go through life. And our lives are the sum total of the choices that we make. In fact, what we call 
the total of our choices is character. Our lives, summed up, our character is a result of choices. Choices we make in public, choices we make in private. That's called character. That's who you are. And character is such a critical thing. It's, it's what God is working on in our lives, what God wants to develop in our lives. So I thought I would look at the nature of some of the choices that people have made and the character that uh, came of it as a result of it. The poet, James Russell Lowell, part of this poem, he said this. He said, Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife with truth, with falsehood, for the good or evil side. Character. It's the sum of what we make in choices. When I was in college, I knew a fellow, we call him Steve, and he was a good friend of mine, and, and uh, there, he was well admired by many people. He was elected to the student government, and he, everywhere he went, he looked very dignified. But in hanging around with Steve off camera, kind of, I discovered something I didn't know about, and most people didn't know about. Steve was addicted to pornography. He had a public persona, and then he had a private life. And I often wondered what happened to him. I lost contact with him after graduation. Everybody went their own way. And I wondered what became of this man. Was he a husband? Did he marry? Was he a husband? Was he a father? Did he overcome? Did he put it away? Did he, did he overcome this addiction he had? Or did it overcome him? He had an appearance of one kind of character. But he also had a reality of a different kind of character. It was a result of choices made. Choices that are made. Well, the first person that I want to look at today in this series, uh, called Moments of Decision, is a man we're all familiar with, and his name is Abraham. And his life had three major seasons. If we look at his life, and what I want to do is sum his life up for us. I'm not going to go verse by verse through it. There are many chapters dedicated to Abraham. And I want to look at different seasons, three seasons in his life. Turn with me, if you will, to the end of Genesis chapter 11. Here we find this beginning of the notice about a man named Abraham. First we find out that there, there's a genealogy here and then uh, down in verse 26 we talk about a man named Terah and he lived 70 years. He fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And now then we go into the generations of Terah and those who came after him and it talks about these three brothers, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran died in the presence of his father. He had a son named Lot, and, and so Haran died. And then Abraham and Nahor also got married. And Abraham married a woman named Sarai, and Nahor married a woman named Milcah. Now, Sarai had no children. She was barren. So we find now that Terah took Abraham, his son, and he took Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abraham's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldees into the uh, land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, and the days of 
Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now chapter 12, we begin to focus in on this man, Abraham, later called Abraham. And we find, about his, we find out about his life. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first season that Abraham's life had was we find here that God told him to get out. It was a season of getting out. He left this city from which he was so familiar. Abraham had to make a choice at this point. God said, get out. Get out of Ur. Abraham had to decide, what am I going to do with that command at this point? The word was plain to him. He had to make a decision. Abraham, we discover as we watch his life unfold before us, developed a habit. The habit was to obey God and to do it quickly. And that's a commendable thing, to obey God and to do it quickly. Now there's something interesting about what God, when God told Abraham to get out of Ur. There is no word here saying, Abraham, I want you to go to this place. All he said was, I want you to leave where you are. I want you to leave this city. I want you to leave what you know. And I'm going to do something in your life. I'm going to do a work in your life. But that's all you need to know for now. You don't need to know where I'm going to do it. You don't need to know when, just that I am going to do it. And it's time for you to get out of this city. Now you can kind of imagine the scene, maybe in an alley in ancient Ur. Uh, Ur was where the moon god was worshipped. And Abraham is out in the alley behind his house packing up his moving camels. Whatever he couldn't carry, if you've moved you know this, whatever you can't take with you, you either have to sell or give away or leave behind in some way. Abraham had to make that choice. Imagine Abraham's neighbor coming up to him talking to him as he's watching this activity. Say, so, hey, so, so, so you're moving? Yeah, I'm going. Well, why are you doing this? Where, where, where are you going, man? Well, God told me to go. God? God, what, what, what God? Which God told you to go? Well, I don't know much about him. I just know that he's God, the true God. And, and he told me. He told me I need to go. I, I don't know a lot about him, but he does talk to me. Really? Yep. You, you hear a voice, do you? Well, no, not exactly a voice. I, I, I don't have a voice, hear a voice, uh, but God talks to me. And, and he told me to leave. So where are you going, man? I mean, you're all packed up and you're all heading that direction, but where are you going? Well, I don't know. I just know that God told me to go. He just said, leave. Really? 
Well, by this time, a crowd of neighbors have gathered, and they're kind of enjoying this. And so this first neighbor continues, said, so, so God told you to leave, and he's not telling you where to go, but you're packing up all that you own, and you're taking your wife, and you're going with your father and your nephew, and you're all going somewhere. Yep. Really. When God directs you in your life, the direction that he gives sometimes seems rather peculiar to the people around you. Sometimes it seems a little hazy. It doesn't seem as precise as we would like it to be. It doesn't say exactly what the next step will be except to obey what you already know. Sometimes we hem and we haw and we bargain with God and we find we're really delaying the blessing that he wants to give us. Abraham decided to make a choice and, and he made the choice to follow God regardless of the cost. His hunger for God, his hunger to know God and to be obedient to him was so great that it didn't matter what it cost. It didn't matter what he had to leave behind. All that mattered was that God spoke and he had to obey. Abraham had a hunger for God that was so great that it seemed like nothing else was worth anything compared to knowing him and the pursuit of him. Jesus later told a parable about a man who found a pearl. He was an aficionado of pearls. He knew pearls. And when he found one that was the best pearl he had ever seen in his life, he went home, it says, and he sold everything he had so he could buy that pearl. So he could own that one. Because... Nothing was worth anything compared to that pearl. Abraham similarly said that there's nothing worth anything compared to knowing and obeying this God. We need to, I need to listen to him, he thought. And so he left everything. He cut the chains of home and the familiar. He left country and family. He settled for the unknown. But it was unknown to him and not to God. And that was good enough for Abraham. He was willing to go wherever God was telling him to go in order to be obedient. Before God can bless you, before God can use you, he often has to move you. In fact, he always has to change something about you. He often has to move you from where you are to someplace new. Now, he might not tell you to pack up your home and move everything that you uh, sell, everything you own, but he might tell you to get a different job. He might tell you to um, take up some other activities after hours, after work. He might direct you in a different way, but he will change where you've been. Before God can use you, he has to move you. Throughout the Bible, as you read the stories of the lives of men and women who follow Jesus, there are uncomfortable questions that are raised. One of those questions is, would I do it? Would I be willing? If God came to me and said, give it all up, walk away from it all, would I be willing to do it? And I think that's a question that all of us have to answer at some time. Would I be willing to follow Jesus? We have friends who are missionaries. 
who have lived most of the time that we've known them, most of their adult lives, they've lived in other places. They have left the comfort of home. They have left their family. They have often had to watch their parents age from a distance. They have not been able to be near them at critical times. They have given up so much. But God has called them to another place. And he has called them to leave behind some of the stuff that we think is so essential and to follow him and to obey him in whatever it might be. Is there something in your life that you've said, maybe privately, probably privately, when you communicate with God and you said, you know, Lord, I'm willing to give up everything to follow you. Everything but this. I I really don't want to leave my home. I I really don't want to leave my job. I really don't want to leave my family, my my dear relatives. I I don't want to do that. I I don't want, in my following you, to uh, have my children follow you so closely that they leave me. I don't want that. Is there anything that you've said in your heart God you can have everything about me you can have it all but and whatever you fill in after that but see Abraham had to face that what was he willing to give up in order to follow God what was he willing to give up in order to be obedient to God that one thing that one thing that you've said in your heart is the thing that I won't let go of or I really just can't let go of that's the thing that will stop you from, from being obedient to God. You cannot go forward with God and stay the same. You have to change. Abraham couldn't stay the same as he was growing up in Ur and living in the comforts of a city and he couldn't stay there. He had to change. He had to see things differently. He had to understand God in a new way as God was revealing himself to him. He had to change. Now all of us have experienced change in one form or another. It's not pleasant for us to change. We don't like change. We often like the results of change, but we don't like the process. We don't like having to think differently. We don't like having to do things differently. We don't like change in that way. But if you want to go forward with God, you cannot stay the same. We see this even at the very beginning of the Christian life for salvation. You say you want to go forward with God. You say you want to know God, and he says, fine. You're dead in sin. You can't know me, he says, unless you are made alive, unless you are born again. And that's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's what you knew. It was what you were familiar with. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A change had to take place. That change Jesus called being born again. In order to go forward with God, you have to change. He has to change you something has to take place on the inside. And you have to make a choice to embrace that change and to trust in Jesus. 
If you're determined to hold on to what is familiar and comfortable, you cannot go forward with God. Now, I've talked to you as a congregation that is approaching 30 years old. We're no longer the wise guys we once were. We're no longer the teenagers. We're mature adults, unfortunately. No, fortunately. Because we know things now that we didn't know then. We've lived through things that we didn't hadn't lived through before. We've come through difficulties together. We have stood together. We have walked together. And we know much more. But we have a danger. And that is because we are 30 years old as a congregation. We don't want to change. We don't like change. But in order for us to go forward with God, change has to take place. He's always moving us in a direction. And moving always requires something different, something new. If you're determined to stay the same, you cannot go on with God. If you were determined before you knew Christ to stay the same, you could not know Christ. You could not go forward with that. And to grow and develop as a believer, you must embrace change. And you must allow God to direct us and give us direction. Well, Abraham's first season of life was one of getting out. God said, get out. And he got out. And he moved on. Well, then we find that as his life is recorded for us in Scripture, that Abraham not only had to get out, but then he had to go on. Sometimes we think that, okay, we make the step of obedience and we do this one thing, whatever it is, the next thing that God is asking you to do, and we're okay. We did it, Lord. We made it. We're through it. But then there's more change that God is expecting and more change that God is doing and more things, more choices that we have to make as far as obeying him. Go now to... Uh, chapter 13 and we find that Abraham had to make a, a decision here again he had to choose and he constantly one of the things that you discover about Abraham's life is that he began to be a man of worship God moved him out of Ur and as he moved from place to place and stayed close to God and following him he began to worship Verse 4 of chapter 13 says, The place where he had made, uh, to the, he returned again to a place called Bethel, where he had made the altar the, at first. He had already begun this, this habit of worship. It had become a pattern of life. Abraham moved from one place to another, and there he built an altar, it says. And as he built that altar, he was recognizing that a relationship with God is vital and active. And it's in every place that we go. And it's not just something you, do, you did back there, but it's something I do here where I am, wherever that might be at this time. And it said that Abraham called on God. He called on God. Calling on God in, indicates that he relied upon him. And so he began to build altars. And we find this in chapter 12 and then again in chapter 13. Altars are always a place of memorial, remembering the work of God. Now in our day, we don't do sacrifice. It's not required to do sacrifices because Jesus already completed them. Our altars, however, are places of memorial in our lives. Some of you, and I hope you've had this habit, have recorded somewhere your progress, your process with God as you've walked along. In your Bible, hopefully the first Bible, or that maybe the first of many, that you're going to wear out along the way. Hopefully you wrote down something in there about the time 
when you were called to follow Jesus. Now, you might know a day. You might know an hour. But you might only know a season that it happened around this time in this year, but it's recorded there. You see, you need that memorial place. And just as Abraham was able to return to memorial altars that he had built before, he was able to go back to those places and remember what God had done there in his life. The same way when you record something that God has done in your life, you have a way of going back to it in your mind. You have a way of reliving the excitement of those moments, of those days, and of those years even, as God was working. So I hope you've recorded something in your Bible. If you've not done it to this day, go back and take time and sit down with your Bible and write inside. There's blank pages in the Bible. You know why? So you can write on them. And you write on there and you write something about when God called you. You're going to need that when you're in a time of uncertainty. You're going to need that when change has taken place, sometimes around you without your choice. You're going to need that to go back to that and say, this is when God moved. Because the little voice of Satan is going to come to you sometime. And as he came to Eve in the garden, he's going to say, did God really say? Did God really call you? Come on. Wasn't that just a lot of emotion? Weren't you just responding to a great speaker? Did God really do anything at that time? When you packed up your family and you moved from one place to another because you were sure that God was moving you to that place and calling you to do that, did God really do anything there? Or were you just being emotional again? You need to have a memorial place to go back to, a place to say, this is where I met with God. This is where he called me. This is what he called me to. And you should have a number of those throughout your life. And just as Abraham practiced this uh, practice of building these altars for memory's sake, you and I need to have a way of recalling the working of God throughout our lives. You see that when, later when Moses would speak to Israel, Moses constantly brought up to them, this is what God did. This is what God did. And then later David would bring it back in the Psalms that he wrote. He would say to the people of Israel, remember what God did. Remember what God did. Remember what God did. And you and I need the same kind of remembrance. You need to know that God has called you to follow in a certain direction and you need to be able to go back to that and have something there in ink so that you can remember that. I remember in the first Bible I had uh, very... Shortly after becoming a believer, I came in across a book. Someone gave this book called me, uh, to me called The Shadow of the Almighty. It was written by a young man named Jim Elliott, who was one of the five missionaries who were killed down in Ecuador, if you recall. And it was Jim Elliott's diary, recording God's working in his life, and even his, his romance and courtship with, with Elizabeth, whom he later married. And it's a wonderful personal view of, of God's working in his life. But there's something he said in there that grabbed my heart at that time, and I had to write it down. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The words were burned into my mind, and I wrote them in my Bible. It was inside the cover of that Bible, because that's the way I determined at that time I wanted to live. I wanted to live in such a way that I was willing to look foolish in order to gain whatever God would have. So Abraham was like that, and he set that pattern. It was a marvelous thing for 
him to do and it was a wonderful thing for us to see. He had to first get out and then he had to go on. And going on with God requires choosing him over others. Abraham traveled with his nephew Lot. And in chapter 13 we find that there's a parting of the ways. Uncle and nephew separate. They had been blessed so much, they had acquired so much that they couldn't stay together. They just There wasn't room for both of them. Now, Abraham was the older. He was the patriarch. He was the one who should have had the authority and the, and the uh, wisdom in order to make the choice. But what Abraham did was he turned to Lot and he said, Lot, you look out there, you look out there, and you go wherever you want. I'll go the other way. You and I are going to separate, not in a bad way, just separate out of necessity, but you choose. And Lot looked up, and being a young guy and aggressive, and he said, oh, I want to go there. That's the place for me. Look at that place. It's got everything that I want. It's, it's a great, beautiful place to live, and it's got these cities along the way. And these cities are so uh, thriving cities. Uh, the two cities over there, Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they, they're so attractive. And so we find that there was a separation of the ways as they got on. And we find that Lot went one way and Abraham went another way. And Lot chose the world's riches and Abraham chose God's promises. And between the two of them, we later discover that Lot made a choice that seemed at the moment to be the wisest choice. It was the place that was most prosperous. It was the place that was the most fun. And then we find in chapter 14 that Abraham had to go and rescue Lot. And then we find later that three angels came to talk to Abraham. And they visited him and they said that, that God is so displeased with what's going on down in Sodom and Gomorrah that those cities cannot continue. They bring constant pain to God. And so Abraham was notified by God that those cities were going to be destroyed. And he began to plead for those cities. And you know that story, how God and Abraham communicated there, and finally there couldn't even be found five righteous people in that city, or ten righteous people in those cities. God did rescue Lot. First Abraham had to rescue Lot, then God had to rescue Lot. Because... Lot had made a choice based on what he saw, based on what appealed to the senses. Abraham made a choice based on what God promised. And he had the security of knowing that God would care for him. Abraham lived close to God and experienced the power of God in his life to such an extent that the ripples of his faith are still felt today. You and I sometimes are called children of Abraham by faith. And this is the legacy that this man left. He chose separation over assimilation. He was willing to look different rather than go along with the crowd. Going on with Lot, with God, sees promises fulfilled. We go over all the way to chapter 21 now, and we find another promise, the beginning of a fulfillment of a promise. This was a child that was a child of blessing that came to Abraham. 
Abraham and Sarah were no spring chickens any longer. They were old. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. You don't have to be a biology major to know that this is not the season for bearing children. And yet, God had promised that he was going to make Abraham a father of nations. He was going to multiply his descendants. Well, you can't multiply descendants without descendants. And so God had given a promise to Abraham. And Abraham believed, even though he was looking at the calendar and crossing off the days and saying, Hey, it's not getting, I'm not getting any younger here. But God had a work to do. And when this child came to him, was given to them, God gave him a name. He said, you call him Isaac. You call him Laughter. That's a great name for a child. Born in their old age, they called, they called him Laughter because every time they saw this baby, they had to laugh. This is too wonderful. Look what God did. This is just amazing. This is just astounding. His name is Laughter, and every time they called him, Hey, Isaac, come over here. They had to relive momentarily in their minds the great joy of following God. Abraham believed God in spite of facts. He saw what was real, but then he saw God, and he knew that there was a reality beyond what was evident to sight. Sometimes the people of God are ridiculed for believing in miracles. But we have no choice, really, if we're going to call ourselves the people of God. Um, to deny the miraculous in the Christian life is to deny God's supernatural that is above nature, uh, his nature. If God is not above nature, then he's just natural. He's just like everything else and everyone else that you've ever met. Thomas Jefferson was the renowned author of the Statutes of Virginia and the, our Declaration of Independence. And he was a man dedicated to rational thinking. And he was living in a time where there was great spiritual motion around him at all times. And he wanted to rationally respond to this. He attempted to be wholly rational in his understanding of life. And he applied this even to the things of faith. And one project that he did on his own, uh, kind of on his own private time, he wanted to know what Jesus was like without the complication of all the things around him, especially miracles. So he took a scissor, he bought a, a Bible, and he took a scissor and he cut out of his King James New Testament all the references to miracles in the Gospels. And then he took those pieces that were left and he rearranged them into a chronological order. He began with the birth of Jesus, but there was no mention of angels, and there was no mention of a virgin birth or of prophecy. His gospel ends in John 19 with this verse. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. And there they laid Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and departed. No resurrection. No miracle. That was the rational perspective of who Jesus was. He just was a good man. He was manageable, though. He was good, but he didn't do any outrageous things. And God didn't do anything outrageous through him. 
Abraham had a very different kind of faith. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that when God said that you're going to become, have children and descendants like the stars of heaven or the sand on the seashore, he believed God. Even though, rationally, it didn't make any sense. What do you believe God is able to do in your life? How big is God able to act and do, what big things are, is, he, are he able, is he able to do around you? What are those things that he can do? I think sometimes too many Christians try to live rationally, live our faith rationally without the miraculous, only by what we see. God is going to be honored when we follow him and when we believe him, take him at his word. Going on with God means holding nothing back. The joy of having Isaac at, old, at an old age was tested in chapter 22. When God told him, take your son, the son of promise, and sacrifice him to me. Now we know so much more about God, and Abraham understood some things about God, but we know things now that Abraham didn't know at the time, and God was testing his heart. What did Abraham do? He had already developed a habit in life that when God said do this, he went and did it. He did it quickly. He didn't wait around and think about it and say, well, let's, let's hold some meetings about this. He just went and did what God said to do. And so you know how it says that early the next morning, Abraham got up and he packed up and he took his son Isaac with him. And he took along wood for the offering. And he went believing God. He chose to believe God. And he chose to give up to God whatever was necessary to follow him. Now we know the end of the story. We know how that at the moment when he was ready to obey God and carry this out, that God said, stop. Don't do it. God already provided another sacrifice beside his son. But then in the book of Hebrews, we discover that something that is not recorded here in the story in Genesis. In Hebrews, it tells us that when Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, he believed that God would raise him from the dead if necessary in order to fulfill his promise to make him the father of many. You see, nothing was too big for God in Abraham's eyes. God could do it. God could do it. In your life today, as God is telling you, go on, what is it that's right in front of you? What is it that is too big for you, right there? The thing that you just can't get around. Every time you open your eyes, it's right there. What is that thing? Are you willing to believe God for that? Are you willing to believe that God is able to carry you through that, around that, over it, whatever is necessary, but that God will carry you? You start out with God by getting out, leaving something behind, and then you go on with God by holding on to him at all times and in every step along the way. Well, there's a third season in Abraham's life. And this third season I call going home. There was getting out, and there was going on, and then there's going home. It's a season that all of us face at some time. Except for God's miraculous intervention in our lives, we're going to face the going home. 
heart. It is a wonderful thing. It is not a terrible season. Preparing to leave this earth is preparing for glory. In chapter 23, we read that Sarah died. She was gone. She had been Abraham's companion for all of those years, through all of his missteps, through all of his victories in faith, and now she was gone. It's a very telling thing in a wedding ceremony when you stand with a young couple all excited and all ready to launch out into life together and they give their vows to one another and they end the vows with until death parts us. That's the reality of life. It's the reality of life that death is part of God's plan. And for us to live as if death is is some mistake, some terrible thing, uh, then we're not understanding fully God's plan for the way that he would have us to live this life, looking forward to what is yet to come. So Abraham was living, looking forward, and going home. I read recently of an elder, elderly woman who called up her friend and, and she told her friend that she had just been diagnosed with cancer. And the words that she used next I think are pretty astounding. She said, perhaps this is the way God will bring me to heaven. She wasn't weeping and saying, oh, it's terrible, I'm going to die, it's all over and everything I ever hoped for is crushed now. She said, maybe this is the way God is going to take me to heaven. She was like in Pilgrim's Progress, the story when when Christian is is just near. He's on this side of the Jordan in Bunyan's allegory, and he he can see on the other side. He can see the celestial city. He's there. He's looking forward to it. And he has to go through the Jordan River, the the turmoil and and, and the difficulty of crossing the Jordan to get to that other side. But he arrives safely there. And of course, it's the picture of the believer dying and going safely to heaven. Abraham lived with a clear perspective. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we find that Abraham lived with a perspective of faith. He wasn't looking for this life to provide everything. He wasn't looking for this life to be the end all, to be the total satisfaction of everything he ever pursued. He knew that this life always would come up short because it is supposed to leave you hungry. It's supposed to leave you thirsty. It's supposed to leave you wanting something more. And the disappointments and the frustrations in this life are only to help us so we don't get fixed here. We don't become cemented here. But we begin to look for something better. We begin to look for what God has yet for all of His children. Too many Christians today want their best life now. Someone said that what we're looking for is we want life on earth to be a vacation when God wants it to be a vocation. We're just looking for ease and comfort all the time. And the way to get the most from this life is to live for heaven. If you live for this life, that's what you get. You accomplish it. How many times have you been shocked reading the newspaper reading or hearing the news about a celebrity, some famous person, some well-known name? Everybody knows the name and everyone knows this man, this woman has, a, has a, achieved a lot and all kinds of money. And you're shocked to hear that they committed suicide. Why? 
If they had everything, what was missing? What was missing? For you and I as God's people, we know what's missing. We know that this life is not ever going to be enough. It will never have the means of satisfying us because it was never designed to do so. Abraham knew that, and he walked with God, trusting him. If you live for heaven, you not only get heaven, but you get earth thrown in as a bonus. If you live for earth, that's all you get, just earth. Abraham chose repeatedly to believe God. In Romans 4, he's held up as, this, as the example of what life by faith is. His great legacy was that he believed God. And in doing so, he became the father of a nation, but more importantly, he became the father of all those who believe. I like the way the message says Romans 4.20. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God. He didn't doubt it when God said you're going to have a child, even though you're an old man and your wife is an old woman. He believed God. He held on. He held on, and he's the example that you and I follow. Well, I want us to, to finish concluding our, our study here of Abraham's life with Hebrews chapter 11. You know Hebrews 11, and Ralph read it before. It's, a, it's the faith chapter. It's the definition of what faith is and how it is to live by faith. And the amazing thing about Abraham is that for all that he had, for all that God gave him, for all the blessing he, he experienced on earth, in verse 13 it says, referring to Abraham and Sarah and those others went before him, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. People who speak such thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham never got the promise fully here on earth. He never saw it here. But it's been granted to him in heaven. He lived in a tent all of his life. He was a wealthy man. He could have settled down. He could have kicked back. He could have had limos pick him up and take him. Well, camels take him. He could have had all the comforts available of his day. But he didn't settle down. He lived in a tent all of his life. What kind of a way is that to live? Unless it's the way we live by faith. Paul the Apostle later wrote and he said that this tent, this earthly body, is what we live in. And someday we're going to put off this tent. We're going to stop living in this tent because God has prepared for us a home. He's given us a place of substance that is ready for us. Abraham was contented and his prize in this life was heaven. The closer you walk with Jesus here in life, the more attractive heaven appears. 
the more attractive heaven is to us. Abraham did not look back. There's no record that Abraham ever went back to Ur. We did read about Lot and his wife when Lot and his wife had to be forced out of Sodom that his wife couldn't bear not to look back and see what she was losing. Her heart was still back there. Abraham looked toward a city. He was of remarkable value on earth because he lived in anticipation of heaven. But what about you? What choices are leading you? What choices do you have to make today or maybe tomorrow you have to make some choices? Are you living this life so as to anticipate heaven? Are you living this life so that you know that, that it's only going to get better when you receive what God has for you? But here, it may get better, it may get worse, but it still is safe when you're in God's hands. What are the choices you're making? What will be the legacy when the sum of your life is written? When, if a, a Hebrews 11 was written about your life, what would it say? Would it say that he walked away from what he knew was sin and he walked with God for those years after. We stumbled along the way, but he walked with God. Or she held tightly to God in the, in the face of heartbreak, in the face of circumstances that were crushing. And she held on because she held on to Jesus, because she knew that there was something far better than this world, and everything in this world ultimately will disappoint, but she knew that Jesus will never fail, that God will hold on and bring you safely home. What will be the story of your life? Well, we're going to close as we have done for quite some time. We're going to sing a song and then we're going to give you the opportunity to be prayed for. And maybe something said, maybe something from the Word has challenged your thinking today and, and you want to, to think about it and you want someone to pray with you and you don't want to leave here without asking someone to stand with you before the throne of God. And this is an opportunity to do that. Someone will meet you down in the front if you come forward to be prayed with. And if you need to, you can stay in your seat and pray, but don't skip prayer. It's the way that God moves. Let's all rise and sing our closing song. We're going to close this morning with a, a song of celebration, and I think that's really fitting. Uh, as Pastor Wayne spoke about looking forward to uh, to a great eternity, and um, this is a song called Days of Elijah. I know we've done it before, but uh, just really, really observe the words and sing them and, and pray them and shout them with us.
because it, there's a sense of anticipation, a sense of excitement over what God is doing and what he's about to do. And you and I ought to live in that anticipation every day. That the idea is that maybe Jesus will come today. But if not, I'm going to live faithful for him until that day. Either he comes or he takes me home. It's a day to live for. It's something to live for. And we live it by faith in Jesus. As you are, are here today and you've got just a few minutes left at the end of this service, I know there's something that I've done so many times. I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to go and pray, be prayed for today. I'll go, I'll go next week. They'll do it again next week. We can go then. And I want to say to you, maybe not. You don't know that. You're not guaranteed that. So be like Abraham. Do what Abraham did in the sense that he developed the habit of quick obedience to God. And if God is talking to you about something and you want to respond to it, do it today. Whatever you do, praise God with the way you live, honor God, and live this life in such a way that when the day comes that you are ushered into heaven, the story left behind will be one that brings praise and honor and glory to Him. Let's praise God as we close. There's no God. There's no God like Jehovah. 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 There's no God like Jehovah.